Welcome to the Power Kid Podcast, the premier and longest running podcast focused on the modern toy and entertainment industry. Power Kid is an award-winning design and development firm, and we are a proud member of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. Adventure Media is the publisher of your favorite industry publications, including the Toy Book, the Toy Insider, and the Pop Insider. I am your host, Phil Albritton, and I bring you great conversations with talented people making amazing products for kids. Toys, books, games, TV, movies, I bring them to you here every episode. Welcome aboard. Hello, 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 Power Kids, and welcome to another Power Kid podcast. Guys, I am so excited about the show today. Thank you for joining us. I have on the line with me a true fangirl. She is a professional, and you're going to love this conversation. Let me introduce you to Anita Castellar. Anita has years of experience working with fan-centric toys and games. Her experience ranges from Disney to Hasbro to Lucasfilm, and she has been instrumental in developing product for the Star Wars brand, as well as for many Disney properties. She now operates Fangirl Consulting and Brand Management, where she helps her clients with negotiation, brand identification, strategic business development, and managing licensed properties. Today, we are going to discuss fandom and the rise of high-end collectibles and what that means for the toy industry. Anita, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to see you. Nice to hear from you. Excellent, Anita. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. I always open with the question uh, about going back in history, and I want to know, how did you come to work in the toy and game industry? Well, actually, it was a very accidental meeting. I started my career at Walt Disney World and moved up to the product development ranks and really began developing product development toys and, um, you know, souvenirs in the theme parks. And that's kind of how I got my start. I moved on from there. I tapped into my own personal passions as a kid growing up, you know, in the 80s and 90s and really being in tune with a lot of properties. And I was already a fan since I was a kid. So, kind of channeled that energy into my work and it's worked for me ever since. Yeah, no, that's great. Tell us about theme park customers and how they might be different than your um, day-to-day Walmart or Target or even Amazon business. Um, What is different about the customers that are inside a theme park and looking for product to purchase? Yeah, it's a very unique environment. Um, it's very emotionally driven. So the purchases there are more about, you know, remembering your, your time in the theme park. So it really is a tangible memory, uh, quote unquote. We used to kind of use that word a lot um, at some points in time when we were developing and filtering. How do we capture the moment? How are we capturing the attraction, the events? you know, the fireworks, everything that people experience when they come to the Disney theme park. So really it's, it's about an emotional experience and taking that thing home with you to remember that. Um, that's different than when you go to like a Walmart or a Target, right? You're kind of going in there for something a little bit more functional. You have a specific purpose in mind usually when you're shopping for that stuff, um, unless you're a child and then the child just wants to browse. So right, right. You know, that's a different, you know, emotional need, <laughs> mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, usually it's a parent and they're p- buying for a specific purpose in mind. And, and, and if you can start with those two premises in mind, then you can actually see the two different starting points for the purchase activity after that point. 
Yeah. Well, I think brick and mortar could learn a lot of lessons from theme park uh, product positioning in that. I think it is important to give the customer some sort of experience, especially in the toy aisle. And one of the best ways um, historically that I had seen the experience leveraged was with the Disney build your own lightsaber booth, right? Um, At Disney. And I understand you had quite a bit to do with that. Can you, can you talk to us about that experience? Maybe how that was developed and the thought process behind it, because it brings millions of people joy every year. So tell us about the experience of developing that. That was a phenomenon that we did not see happening for sure. We thought it would be going to be a great little experience at the Once Upon a Toy, you know, location in, in, in what was then downtown Disney at Walt Disney World. Now it's Disney Springs. But, you know, we thought it would be great because it just built off of an existing toy product actually that Hasbro had. So backing up a little bit, Hasbro at the time was a corporate alliance partner with uh, Walt Disney World. And so that meant they could sponsor certain things or certain locations. And there was a toy store that was called Once Upon a Toy. And that was one of my responsibilities was to coordinate with Hasbro on how to fill that location and what types of products could go into there. And at the time, of course, the Star Wars license was a big property for us, but it was still a licensed property. So we coordinated with Hasbro and they had released a a toy which had pieces and parts of a lightsaber and you could build it. At home. So if you purchased it, you basically had a build kit for a lightsaber. Um, You know, they weren't using the tools anymore. We thought we had some space and an opportunity to kind of freshen that thing up and bring it out back to life and make it a real experience. And so we did that. So we coordinated with Lucasfilm at the time and got their permission and some graphics. And we coordinated with Hasbro and how to leverage their tools and Mm -hmm. built an experience and a phenomenon that continues to this day. That's really, really interesting. So did you bring those tools into your own factories or how did you negotiate? No, we um, actually, yeah, we actually worked with Hasbro to, um, they were our manufacturer of record. So we just had Hasbro be the manufacturer, sell it to us wholesale, and then we would import it from there um, and bring it into the warehouse. And basically it was a bulk program, which continues to be a bulk program. And each piece and part has to be tracked manually it is a manual process and it still has it's gotten efficient but it's really no way to you know i don't know automate that unless you start tagging it with like rfid chips and all kinds of crazy technology but um really it's a great process in in coordination collaboration and and just building on an existing item and utilizing existing tools not meaning the physical tools, but meaning like tools in your tool belt, right? So like if somebody, you know, created some a great idea and you could build on that and they're willing to work with you, then you can come up with something even better, which is what the Build Your Own Lightsaber was in its original format. Now uh, the parks actually tools their own um, pieces themselves. So they manufacture them independently of Hasbro. Yeah. And I love this relationship between Disney Lucasfilm and Hasbro. It's it's a very close relationship. Tell us about being on the inside of that. You've had you've had experiences with all three of those companies. Uh, but tell us about the experience of, of those companies working together and, and how do they, you know, how do they create such great products? I think storytelling is the key. I mean, the the products always come from a great story. I mean, Lucasfilm has the greatest story probably of the modern times with Star Wars as as its center. Indiana Jones gets a, a an honorable mention in there as well, <laughs> but sure, Star Wars absolutely. is key for sure. But 
you know, Hasbro always creates great products around great stories. So if you look at the Transformers brands and you look at My Little Pony brands and different things that they've been able to curate throughout the years, they have great stories at their center as well. Um, and if you can have some great developers and toy designers such as Hasbro has to help bring these things to life in the 3D format, such as a toy, then, you know, you've, you've done your job by creating a centered, focused story. And then you're really just branching out into iterations of that story. So, and Disney, of course, you know, like I was saying at the beginning, which is uh, tangible memories, you're basically creating a 3D piece from, you know, the story that you are experiencing on a daily basis when yeah. you enter those parks. So really, yeah. if you've got a great story and you've got great imagination to go with it, then you can hopefully extend that into a physical space and a physical representation of what that story is. Yeah. Yeah. To where you want to take home a piece of that story that you mm-hmm. love. Um, well, which is what collecting both, is about. Yeah. Right, right. And, and you and I are both fans, but we're both in the business as well. And so I want to talk about that and that dichotomy of the balance between being a fan and being in the business. So what, what have been some of the challenges and the benefits of turning your passion into a career? Yeah, that's that's been a phenomenal journey, to be honest. I'm truly grateful for all the opportunities I've had, given, you know, the fandom that's out there and the fans as well, because if they don't support what you are creating, then there really is no other place to go from there. There's nowhere to go unless they show up and, and buy your things or participate in whatever you're creating. So it's really for the fans and by the fans that it's kind of like my mantra and how I approach the business and, and the licensing. And being a fan myself, I try to harness those feelings, those emotions, those, you know, what am I looking for if I were that fan, right? And and there's lots of spectrum. There's a whole spectrum of fandom, really, where you're a casual fan or you're a hardcore fan. And, and where's your entry point into the fandom for that particular property? So right. back, you know, stepping back again for Star Wars, there are various entry points into the brand. There is video games, there's Lego, there's, you know, the TV show Rebels, which was most recently on air. There was the Clone Wars series before. There's the movies, you know, there's the park with the attractions. There's so many entry points into the brand that, you know, where did you enter? And then how did you experience the brand at that point, right? So that's kind of also where you have to filter what to offer, for, for that person and, and depending on what's important to them, right? So I've been able to turn on and off that, that ability um, to be able to, you know, really vet whether something is a business viable option or is it really just a fan service option? <laughs> like, do I right, really like it right. just because it's great and it's cool and I love that background character? Or, yeah. you know, is it really something that we could sell? Like, I can't sell Ewok number five in the background, right? Like, nobody knows who he is. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Right. We just have to really filter at sometimes which one is the, the right piece to go forward with. And when you have a team of designers at Hasbro, like I worked with, or marketers that they're all fans, it's really hard sometimes to get consensus. But at some point, somebody has to make a decision and you move forward. And hopefully you move forward with the right piece. Yeah. So let's talk about this relationship between the collector and the manufacturer, because what I see a lot of times is that fans will be very vocal and passionate about the creation of a certain, let's say, action figure or collectible to be released. And then we all get excited about it and it's released 
and suddenly it's a peg warmer yeah. or Brian's toys can't get rid of them. Why does that happen? And, and what do you think that fans and manufacturers can do kind of on both sides to help communicate better? Um, and what do fans need to be thinking about when they suggest a product? What do manufacturers need to be thinking about when they accept those requests from fans? Well, I know what fit what the manufacturers are thinking about for sure. They're, like, they're thinking, can I make enough money from this? Is this really viable enough to turn on a machine at the factory, you know, where the MOQ of an action figure is at least ten to twelve thousand pieces, and this fact sure. action figure's development is going to cost me minimum sixty thousand dollars, right? So those are the kinds of sunken costs that you start off with when you're looking at a thing like an action figure or any kind of collectible piece, depending on the materials. Mm-hmm the fans don't always have that inside track of what the cost to make an item. Some are smart, uh, you know, in that respect. And some are just, they just don't know because they don't know. But, you know, when you sit down and explain it to them, often they're like, okay, I kind of understand why manufacturer X won't bring out my figure when you, when you kind of give those education points. But as you're vetting them, you know, it's difficult to say, what will take off sometimes your crystal ball is a little not clear and, and you're working with the best information that you have. But if you have enough exposure for the character or for the story piece that you're trying to emulate and it will resonate for a longer period of time than just 30 seconds with fans. And, you know, it has some viable touch point in the future. Let's say there's another way to um, access that moment that you're trying to bring to life that's kind of a good starting point when you're a manufacturer to start vetting what's the piece that I want, right? Is this character going to be on screen for 10 seconds or for 10 minutes or for an hour? And what kind of impact will that character or that story have on the fans or on the emotional mindset of the person you're trying to tap into? When you're a fan, you know, you may like Ewok number five in the background and his headdress is really great, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you just got to make sure that what you're asking for is really viable to the majority of people on the fan spectrum, right? So yeah, there's a very right. hardcore in the center and we know that, you know, thankfully we can always count on them to show up. But after that, for something to be business, you know, um, viable, it has to have longer legs. And so you need to be able to tap into those casual fans as well as the hardcore fans, and then maybe even recruit a new fan so that you always sure. are generating new business and new sales from that piece that's being put out. So it's hard. Sometimes the priorities are on different ends of the spectrum, right? And they're pulling against each other versus in sync with each other. But somewhere in there, there's, there's a way to come together. And I think Hasbro, for instance, has done a really good job of being able to continuously talk to the fans, you know, have that dialogue with them. Those are those contests where they say, hey, suggest, you know, the next action figure. And so the fans get to choose and they vote. And then, you know, eventually one wins. Um, Sometimes it's a great one. Sometimes it's a peg warmer. (laughs) Right. Right. And well, and there is this balancing act, too, between the collectors and the kids. Correct. Which I understand the kids market is much larger than the the collectors fan base. And so, you know, Hasbro has to balance between those two points as well. Exactly. And, And again, it's really the longevity of a brand like a Star Wars brand or even a My Little Pony brand is being able to recruit new fans. 
So, you know, we're, we're yes, about the fans of today and obviously keeping in touch with them and what are their hopes and dreams and desires when you're bringing together a, a product for them. But in the end, the longevity of a brand and the longevity of a product line will come into play when you are able to recruit new consumers. So right. you can't right. just have the vision for today. Yeah. And I've got to bring up. So in, in 2018, so this year, um, Hasbro did something pretty unique and phenomenal with a, um, a segment of their company called HasLab. And they uh, put up for potential manufacturer Jabba Sail Barge, right? The Katana. $500 toy. Okay. They put this up and 8,000 fans got on board, right? Got on board the sail barge and this thing is getting made. Yeah. Um, is this, what, what do we think about this new model? Just because it's kind of, it's kind of fresh on people's minds from your perspective. What do you think about the model? Um, it, it's obviously it's been successful. Um, you know, we're going to get a, a job, a sail barge, which is amazing, but also, you know, speak to that from your experience with high end collectibles as well. Yeah. That, that price point is actually on the lower end of the spectrum of high end collectibles. <laughs> um, right. you know, where yes. helmets begin at one twenty five, one fifty, and go up. And mm-hmm. those are even the cheap helmets. Um, sure. you know, that's not unusual, that price point. However, from a toy company, right, from that perspective, um, this is not a gentle giant. This is not a sideshow that specializes in higher price points. This is a toy company that we see traditionally in the Walmarts of the world or Targets. But this is also a symptom of the changing retail landscape and also the changing consumer base and how they consume what they want and how they are gonna go after it when they want it. So for instance, because this product is not tied to a retail shelf space, we can, you know, a Hasbro can offer it at any given time period and at any given price point directly to the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, they right. ask them, hey, you want it? And we put it up on a, a Kickstarter type program. And if you show up and buy it, we'll give it to you. That is the direct dialogue that companies are able to have nowadays with the fans and with their consumers that was not possible before. So, you know, there's a whole social media landscape. There's a whole push, obviously, to directly connect with your consumers and with your fan base. And your fan base, by the way, can be anything from Martha Stewart to, you know, Star Wars, right? Your fandom is your core (laughs) consumer. (laughs) Those are the people who show up to your products. But in general, this is a symptom of the changing landscape of retail, how everything is and the communication with the fans and with the consumers. You can have a direct communication with your consumers that really wasn't available before social media or before the Internet took off. Right. And now with retail changing the way it is and us losing locations like Toys R Us that could manage you know, larger big boxes uh, of toys, literally big boxes, um, you know, we got to find ways to reach our fans and reach our consumers in innovative ways. And this was really smart of Hasbro. I think it was great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in your answer, you just hit upon uh, maybe a groundbreaking brand crossover, Martha Stewart and Star Wars yeah. coming together. Uh, I would love this. I mean, Blue Milk, Bantha Steaks. Uh, I think we can make this happen. I think this is the next <laughs> top chef you know, challenge out there. But, you know, if her and Snoop Dogg could get together, anything is possible. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So let's talk about fangirl consulting and management, your company. How do you help your clients? Obviously, you've got this vast experience in the toy industry. How do you help your clients get on their feet? 
You know, what's good about what I can do is that I can customize what they need. So, you know, because I have such a vast variety of experiences and skill sets, I've done product development myself, I've done branding myself, I've done marketing myself, you know, I've done licensing, I've been a licensor, I can give them insights into different pieces that maybe they're not thinking of. So if it's licensing, that's the easy part. I can give them the perspective of a licensor. And and if their proposal is great, or if we're looking at certain brands, how do we approach them? How do we talk to them? How do we formulate that conversation so that we get to a yes in a shorter amount of time, right? If Mm -hmm. it's a manufacturer and we're looking at, you know, how to build the product line. If we're looking at what are the more efficient ways to build your product, I've done that as well. So I've done, you know, tooling and budgets and, you know, CAD, I haven't drawn the CAD designs, but I've had to review them and make sure I'm giving the best input I can for manufacturing. So I can give that information and input and help guide that development in that respect as well. So Again, it's more about using all the skills that I've accumulated and all of the tools in my tool belt. And so that way I can customize what each of my clients is looking for. I can customize my response to them and how I can help them. So would you sit down and negotiate a licensing agreement with, say, a a huge brand like Star Wars? Um, What are the key elements to be aware of? What are some of the pitfalls to avoid? Well, the biggest pitfall is that you've got a one trick pony, right? So if you only got one item to offer and you're, you know, that's all you can offer, um, you know, it may fulfill a need at that moment. I'm not saying don't go after the opportunity, but, you know, it, it has to be something that you can build a long-term relationship with that partner. So if that mm-hmm. partner is very good at, um, solution oriented, you know, needs. So for instance, there's always last minute retail plays. There's always, you know, innovation required at the last second. And that licensee can become for you a solution oriented licensee. That's a really good skill to, to be able to tap into often as a licensor. I need this last minute thing created. I've got my go-to licensee. They never fail. They always deliver on time and they're creative and they can innovate, right? So that's a really great licensee to have within your portfolio. They may not be your biggest revenue driver. So, you know, when you're, Mm -hmm. you've got to kind of have to decide about that. That's from a licensor perspective, but from a licensee, you have to be innovative. You should be looking to always distinguish yourself as something like, what's, what's the hook about you? Why should I look at you versus all these other licensees who are pitching? And, and are you on trend Can you tap into the storytelling of what I'm trying to offer to the fans? Can you extend the storytelling? You know, because my philosophy always when I was licensing was that everything that I was licensing was an opportunity for the fans to experience the Star Wars brand, the Star Wars storytelling in a way that's meaningful to them at that moment. It could be a mug, Mm. it could be an action figure, it could be whatever it was. But when they reached for that item, they were reaching for the experience that was most meaningful to them at that moment. And, and hmm. when you look at that as the center of the licensing program, if you flip that on the other side and know that that's what a licensor could be wanting at that moment, how do you then offer your product to fulfill that need? 
Yeah. When you say at that moment, are you talking about the latest movie, the latest characters, the latest animated short? Is is that the at that moment? Or no. is there, uh, you know, uh, OK. Yeah, yeah, tell me about sorry. That. Yeah, no, I, I actually mean that from at that moment that the per, that the fan or the consumer is reaching for that product that fulfills their emotional need at that moment. So if, mm, okay. if I'm a lifestyler, I want to wear the most trendiest expression of that brand. If I am a, a collector and a completist, I want the latest iteration of that packaging that I can have. <laughs> if, you know, if yeah. I want the latest helmet and I must have that and it must fit a certain way that I'm, you know, that means that that product has to be available to fulfill that need. Unfortunately for the licensor, it's really difficult because then you have to be kind of out there seeking and searching and actively understanding what the fans want. Yes. Yes. That gets very much more complex that you have to kind of read the mind of the collector, um, maybe even a year in advance or two years in advance so that you can have that product ready to go when the collector is ready for it. Yeah. I used to try to, I'm always like, I've been a super nerd. I've always been book knowledge, you know, bookworm type of person as well. So I'm always really interested in reading new technologies, new manufacturing processes, new marketing tactics, you know, whatever. Who's the up and coming companies that are really innovating in a specific space? I used to love to go to CES all the time um, and just scour the new technologies pieces where you would see people like, you know, Ozobots or Spheros of the world and that kind of thing there. So Mm -hmm. for me, that's really interesting. I I love that from just a personal standpoint, but then I would say, okay, there's a big buzz happening here in the marketplace about this technology or this uh, company or this outfit, right? This, you know, particular expression of fashion. What, what does that mean for me and my brand? Can I marry that up? You know, can I, can I make, take advantage of that? Right. And, and, and then work with that company. And so sometimes I would cold call companies or reach out to them and say, Hey, I'd like to work with you. I think you're, you guys are really interesting and you have a great product and I can envision it coming together for Star Wars. Here's my vision. Do you agree? Would you like to work together? Yeah. So let's flip the question on itself then. And I'll ask, what about for smaller brands? What if I come to you and need and I've got this this idea for a story and I've got characters and I'm a smaller brand and I'm looking to find a place for that, a home for that, to plant that so that it can grow. Uh, What do you look for in new IP when you're looking for something that has the potential to have a big market impact? Yeah, you have to have interesting characters and it always goes back to storytelling. You have to have a really good story. Now, everyone loves their own story, right? So they're not going to say, I don't have a good story. <laughs> but, you know, you the story itself has to be really compelling. Um, it has to have some type of draw that will lead them into future iterations of that story. So if you think of Harry Potter as a great example, you know, could have been one and done with one great story, one great book. But there was so much to tell there and each character was so well developed that there were more iterations than ever thought possible of that one story. Mm -hmm. So if that's at the center of it and then you can, in my head, literally I can envision, you know, physical pieces coming out of these ideas as a licensor, Mm -hmm. my job is to obviously license consumer products and make a 3D expression of whatever that storytelling is. So if I can begin to envision what these things could be already, then that becomes a potential starting point, right? If these characters have emotional draws and 
and characteristics that I see myself or even children that could emulate them, then that's also a potential starting point. You know, if you can bring all those things together, then you might have a really even bigger starting point. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. Uh, Very compelling. You've got great experience. Anita, how can people reach out to you, find out more about you and your business? Well, I'm definitely on LinkedIn. Um, uh, You can see me there often as I'm um, a social media stalker. And, you know, my email is Anita (laughs) at FGLicensing.com or they can check us out in San Diego Comic-Con. I'll actually be there in person along with some of my clients like Fan Raps and Boss Fight Studios and um, Brian. Rude, one of the artists there. So we'll be all together and taking meetings. Um, would love to see all of the fans and also some of the business people come out and say hi. Um, and again, if you want to reach out and talk to us and have a meeting, you know, we're happy to talk to you as well. Wonderful. Guys, go see Anita at San Diego Comic-Con. Reach out to her. Anita, thank you so much for your time. What a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Power Kid Podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And leave a good review on iTunes. This helps us find more great listeners just like you. Remember also to check out the other shows that are a part of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. This show is brought to you by the Power Kid Design and Development Team. We are a full-service design and development studio serving the toy and game industry for over 20 years. Our partners, large and small, rely on us for invention, concept development, packaging, branding, prototyping, and much more. You can find me on my LinkedIn page, check out the website at PowerKidDesign.com, or email me directly, phil at PowerKidDesign.com. I am always happy to connect and help you develop your next great product. It's been an honor to spend this time with you today. Now go out and make something great. And remember, you are creative because you were created. God bless, and I'll see you next episode.